Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today we're speaking with Kara Snafty. She's a certified dog behavior consultant, mediator, and therefore a wonderful pet custody specialist. Today we're going to talk about the three common speed bumps that occur in divorce with animals. Humanizing the animal, weaponizing the animal, and bargaining in your worst interests to keep the animal. So let's hear what Karis has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and this is the Why Do Pets Matter podcast. Today, I'm with my dear friend, Kara Snafty, who is a certified dog behavior consultant, a mediator. And so by virtue of both of those things, she is the best pet custody specialist you could find. She and I work closely together because we do understand that divorcing with pets is an emotional experience that needs assistance to navigate. So Karis, welcome so much again to Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you for having me, Deborah. I'm very happy to be here. So we had talked before about all sorts of things we come up against as mediators of conflicts between people over animals, you specifically in divorce and probably other avenues as well. But today we're going to hit on these three things that Karis and I feel are the most important things. And we might sneak into another topic as well, but we run out of time all the time and we might have to have Karis back for a third time. So today we're going to talk about the common speed bumps that happen in divorce that include animals. So Karis, tell us about those speed bumps because I don't want to steal your thunder. I love the words you use because it really is important to understand how people feel when relationships break up either through divorce or just relationship breaks up and what happens with the animals. Yep. Thanks, Deborah. So the three, the three most common uh, avenues that people go down, and nobody intends to do this. This is not, a, not usually a conscious thing, but there's just three easy, easy rivers to flow down. One of them is humanizing the dog. Okay. And we'll extrapolate on all of these. So we've got humanizing. The second very common problem is weaponizing the dog or um, and or the cat. So just just for the listeners, or the bird I, my, or the horse, whatever or the bird or the, the horse, lizard. yeah, the pig, the hedgehog. Yeah. That's right. uh, so my my habit is to use the use the word dog because and, and most that is of my euphemism for dog. every animal you might possibly have in your life. Exactly. Any anything with with. Uh, hooves or claws or scales or whatever feathers. I mean, dog. Okay. So, so just pe- please forgive me listeners. That's my own, just my habit. Um, so we've got humanizing, weaponizing, 
And the third uh, common danger is bargaining with the dog animal pet. And the challenge with all three of these things is that if you are not careful in any of those scenarios, you actually lose the need of the animal that you're dealing with. You forget about their needs and you're using them for other purposes. And whether you forget about their needs because you imagine they're, they're a small child and they have the same emotional needs as a child, whether you're using them to get your way or whether you're using them as a threat kind of hanging over your ex. So, so I'd love to share with the listeners those three things. So whether, they're, whether you're listening as a divorce professional or if your friend's getting a divorce or you're getting a divorce, maybe a little light bulb will go on because my goal in the work that I do and all of these things is I want to create awareness about how best we should be dealing with pets in divorce. Yeah, because unfortunately, your pet doesn't hate your ex. My coined phrase in the Bloomberg article. And if you can remember that, you can start listening to what Karis is going to share in a way that is sort of reality tested. Exactly. They don't hate your ex. And my favorite phrase, which all of my clients and students hear from me, is that dogs don't speak English and they don't speak Spanish and they don't speak German. Okay. They speak dogs, of course, learn um, they learn commands and they learn words, but they don't understand us nearly as much as we think. So this is a nice lead into the problem of humanizing. Yeah. So I was just finishing up today and another, another article I'm doing about dogs, which is for people going through divorce, which is how does your dog feel about your divorce? And in that, and, and in the problem of humanizing, the challenge with dogs, and when I say dogs now, I do mean specifically dogs, is that dogs pick up on all of our emotions. They, they know when we're happy. They know when we're angry. Um, you know, they know when we're distraught. They know when we're excited. Um, and they respond to those moods. We've bred them to do that. You know, we, have, we have over the years selectively bred dogs who will follow our cues and kind of do what we want. And that's what makes them such great little companions. But that doesn't give them an awareness, a deep human-like awareness of a situation that's happening. So the problem of humanizing is that people will say things or they'll assume things like, um, well, if, if my dog never sees me again, he'll, he, he will just be so sad. Or my dog doesn't want to go to see you on the weekend. Um, or, or it's only fair if the dog sees us each 50% of the time. Um, or the dog hates you, like you said, Deborah. You know, the dog doesn't like you anymore. And, um, and whenever we put human, literal human emotions onto our animals, it's especially easy with dogs. You assume they understand too much. And in that, it tends to really, really stress dogs out. So in my work as a behavior consultant, when people call me because, you know, their dog is, is biting them or running away or um, biting the neighbor's dog or, or whatever, whatever you can think of, um, I have to always help them understand that often the behavior that dogs show is how they're showing stress, but they're often stressed because of how the owner feels. Yeah. So if you're upset about the fact that you're getting a divorce, which is of course, a very understandable thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
your dog will not have a concept of the divorce, but they will just know that, geez, the house is a stressful place. Yeah, the energy. Absolutely. Yeah. And so they'll show that by barking and, you know, or some dogs sleep like shame when some dogs, some dogs, when they get stressed, they just sleep all the time and they kind of hide. Some dogs become really hyper and they seem like they're a bit crazy or they just bark at any little excuse to bark um, or they become a bit snappy. There's a whole bunch of things, but their behavior will change. That's mm-hmm. how they show you something, something is up. So it's very important not to, to, to see dogs as a dog or as a cat, not as a child. And the truth is, and this might sound a little bit harsh to some listeners, is that this is more of a common problem with couples who don't have human children because the dogs and cats can literally take that place. Yeah. They become, they become surrogate children. And that is a too heavy of a burden for a dog to carry. I, I can't agree with you more because it is so difficult Um, when people do not have children and the dogs have become their children and they have humanized them to, and of course the courts don't recognize them as children, even though the parties have because they've humanized them the way you've spoken. And so when they aren't treated the same way as children would be, people get really angry. They do. We don't go to court about these things because you really can't appreciate, understand, acknowledge and then find the best path forward, which is why they hire someone like you, Karis, to help them navigate those next steps. Yeah. And sometimes in that in that situation, you know, we have to have that um, that really challenging conversation of, well, if you if you love your dog enough, if it's right to let them go, do you, do you actually love your dog enough to let it go? And um, not all the time, of course, but but. But that's a reality because shared custody, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I mean, this is just a little footnote, but shared custody is becoming very, um, very in vogue and very popular, but it is not appropriate for every dog. A lot and of dogs. It's not appropriate for every person. Sometimes they agree to it and then it gets even more weird. Absolutely. It gets even more weird. Um, then, and, and really what the, what the people are doing in that, in that sort of situation is setting it up that they have to see each other for years and years, and they have to keep interacting when otherwise they might not need to. So if for a dog, depending on the background of the dog and, and it's, you know, it's age and it's breed and, and all of those things, you know, if shared custody is going to stress the dog out and one of you has to say goodbye, is one of you willing to do that? And that's a, that's a really hard conversation to have, but those people love the dog genuinely more so than people who are, who are unwilling to say goodbye, even when it's better for the animal. And I always like to have these conversations before you're getting divorced, because then you're more clear eyed, clear minded and recognize what's best for the pet. And sometimes when you're in the middle of a nasty divorce, um, hanging on to the dog is something you do probably for the second piece of it, weaponize it so that you can really make sure that you create um, that strife that either has the other party give up because you're being such a bully or um, you give up because the other party is being such a bully. Yeah. So the the weaponizing issue is a really insidious thing. So one of the things, this is why, and I, I know you're the same, Deborah, that when I advise Anyone going through a divorce, if I'm working with the mediator or with the attorneys, I say, we have to deal with the animals 
as soon as possible in the yeah. divorce proceedings. And they never do. They think it's sort of like a I chair know. because it's property and under the law. So it's a chair. Yes. And I'm like, yeah. you are going to be so sad. You're going to have that divorce set, set up. Everything's perfect. You come to the dog and just yep. watch it go down the toilet. Yeah. And the other thing that I have seen quite a bit of lately is that let's say, you know, um, John and Sarah are getting a divorce. And if Sarah knows that for John, the most important thing is the dog, like, and of course you would know this, if it doesn't get dealt with soon in the divorce, it just hangs around like this kind of unspoken, scary cloud. And then in this imaginary situation, John might find himself capitulating to things that he might not otherwise, or maybe he's just trying to keep things really, really friendly because he doesn't want the dog to become a problem. But in that keeping things too friendly, he might be making sacrifices that aren't actually appropriate for him. Um, so that's also what I try to explain to, to other divorce professionals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get it out the way because it looms there. And then, and then of course, then it becomes, the, so that's sort of the secret weaponizing where no one wants to talk about it. And then there's the overt weaponizing where, you know, one one party has more financial control or, or emotional control and the dog becomes a, a way to threaten and and intimidate each other because one person really, really, really wants the dog. And that's the thing that they really want. And the other person will just use that because that's like the Achilles heel. Yeah. And again, in that situation, it's of course terrible for the people. It's a terrible yeah. bargaining chip. If you it's love a, the animal and you'll give away everything, then they'll weaponize the animal. You're absolutely right. Yep. So if you get that out the way first and it's down on paper, then that everything can breathe a little bit more. And of course, I mean, obviously the 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 conflicts will still arise as they do. But from my, from my point of view, I would rather have the conflict not on the animal. I'd yeah. rather have it somewhere else. It, you know, it's, it seems that because of the first piece, which is the humanization of the animal, that these discussions have become more important uh, because people really do rely on their animals. Now we've just come out of um, a pandemic, so animals are even more important. Sometimes, especially in relationship breakups, the animal stayed with one uh, because the, uh, they had to stay apart, um, maybe because of some issue with work or whatever. And now they want to get back together again and the relationship isn't working, but yet the dog was always supposed to be shared. And I, I absolutely told you, Karis, that we were gonna share this dog no matter what. And then I decide um, not anymore. How do you help people who find themselves on the short end of that stick? So here the animals have really been what got um, someone through. And I, I gave up the dogs because I really needed to stay with my parents or whatever. And I couldn't matriculate with my significant other. Uh, and, and now that everything's better, I'd like to see my, my pets again, even though our relationship isn't working. Uh, and you've told me, no, no way. Yep. That's the, that's the, there's no, there's no elegant way through that, that scenario. And I mean, we deal with that all the time. So my default with people always we in the work that I do, it's like people really need to be their their story needs to be heard. They need to be able to explain where they're coming from and, and why they did the things that they do. And then the other side of that, my default is I say, what is best for the dog going forward? And and one of kind of the ethos of my work is 
I really try to look forward about the future. And we have to acknowledge the past and, and, and whatever that means and whatever that means financially and, and in other ways. But from the animal's perspective, what is important for them is what is life going to look like going forward? So some animals, like with visitation, so this is something that, that has to be negotiated as an individual thing for each dog. Because for some dogs, and again here, I do more specifically mean dogs and cats, having random kind of visitations from someone that they had such a bond with is very sure. stressed. It's very distressful for the dog, very stressful, super distressing because suddenly there's that person again and there you are and then you leave again. And, and, and then you can end up with scenarios where the dogs sit by the door and they wait for a few days and they cry and they howl because they don't know if the person's coming back or not. So, those are conversations I do have a lot with people. And I try to explain that from an animal behavior point of view, that if the dog is not going to be yours, if for whatever the scenario, whatever the situation is, we know that the Bob is the dog is going to stay with person A, even though person B loves the dog, it might be better person B if you don't visit the dog because it's going to stress your dog out so much. And dogs are really good at saying goodbye. And I know that sounds strange, but that's true. <laughs> there are a lot, they can say goodbye a lot easier than people can, but it's the random visits that sometimes keep them desperately looking for someone. Now, in saying that, this is what makes my job tricky. There are some dogs that can have random visits and they like seem really quite fine with it. Yeah. So it's, it is it's not a case basis. It's a total case by case basis. It's not a one size fits all thing, but it's, but either way I have the conversation ahead of time. And normally for mo most people, they, they can get their head around that, that it's like, it's going to make your dog so worried to see you. And then you leave again. And also those visits tend to be so emotional. You know, when people see their dog, it's like this this grand reunion, like I almost died, but now I'm not and I'm back. And as exciting as those reunions are, it stresses the dog out. I suppose that maybe I'm using the word stress too much, but they have a hard time having a concept of it. So, so it, it doesn't, it's generally not a peaceful thing and the dogs don't know if something's wrong and what's going on. And then when you leave, it sort of creates this void. So what I do recommend to people who, if, if they are going to have the visits, as hard as it is, try to be really low key when you greet the dog. You can have a reunion, but it, it try not to create those moments. Like, I mean, I love those videos, you know, when there's, when there's servicemen the back from the army or something. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. He's been deployed and he's now he's home and the dog just has just the most hysterical reunion. Those are so sweet, but that's different because the person's now home again, but you don't want to do that every two months or every month when you see the dog or whatever. Or worse every week. Or worse every week. Absolutely. Because sometimes that week does work because it isn't that long and they get used to it. It's It really is up to each dog. I love that you said that because every dog handles it differently. And for some of my clients, they don't see the dog anymore, but what they want to do, and I'd love to get your ideas about this, is they want the other party, if they can't keep the dog, um, to let them know. So they have first dibs on taking the dog. Yeah, because there's nothing think, worse than working out an arrangement where I keep the dog and Karis doesn't because she's doing the right thing, you know, because the dog doesn't really do well with separation. But then a month later, I go, I hate this dog and I drop it off at the shelter and don't have to call Karis. 
Yeah, no, I, I, you're a hundred. I a hundred percent agree with you. That's just that's absolutely that's cruel. Just bad mojo. That's just bad karma on every level. It really, really is. It yeah, it's really not. And I mean, I just course, yeah. sometimes is they want the dogs to go to the kid with the kids, right? So they go to the cl- the parent with the kids um, most of the time, and uh, the dog doesn't transfer. Uh, but then it gets to be too much, and so you know that parent gives up the pet, and the kids are upset, and the other spouse is upset who could have possibly taken the dog. So I always, in every one of my agreements, say, okay. So maybe it's not good to share the dogs week to week, month to month. But if you're going on vacation for a week or two, that might be a great time for the dog to visit with the ex um, or if something occurs. Uh, Because I know you've come across this a lot with comments that people make. But if you, you know, get divorced or your relationship breaks up and, you know, Karis takes the dog and I don't, um, if Karis if the dog gets sick, how is Karis going to get in touch with me? That has to be worked into it because I would like to be able to help pay the medical bills. Or if something happens to Karis and she can't care for the dog, I want to be the first person who Karis calls. It's such an important piece and often overlooked by divorce professionals because they just say, okay, you get it, you don't, and then that's it. They don't ever look to that, as you said, always looking to the future always going forward, um, not necessarily connecting the people for life because that's not what they want. However, when you bring this up to the clients, and I have found this and maybe you have too, they go, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. And people are usually so relieved and it tends to kind of calm something down. Um, And also just that the other person you know, I, uh, Deborah, I have to let you know when Rover passes away or if he gets very sick, you know, just so that it, it's not, it doesn't become a void and, and sort of an unknown factor, but yeah, but it, it's a definitely the person should have first right of, of, of everything. I mean, I just worked with a dog, the saddest story that turned out to be such a sweet story with a woman. And this wasn't a divorce case. This was just a pit bull that was having some behavior problems And the long story short, the woman was going to let the dog go to a rescue home. And we found out by tracking back with the four homes that it had, that the first person had told the person who took it second, if you can't keep the dog, give it back. But the person was embarrassed. And anyway, this dog ended up being passed from home to home to home. And thankfully, we tracked down the original owner who said, please give me the dog back. So... That was just a beautiful, what a wonderful resolution from that. I have to say that that is, that's my mantra. If you're going to um, say breed a dog, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, whatever, uh, you really are responsible for it from the whelping box until the rainbow bridge. And the the trouble with that is, you know, I sign a contract with Karis and Karis takes my dog and then Karis is embarrassed to call me and say, you know, it didn't work out with Fluffy. Um, And so she gives it away. And unless I keep in touch and drive by Karis's house to see if, in fact, she still has Fluffy. Um, she could give it away. And I had a case like that um, in one of my dogs, and it was the first right of refusal. And the person didn't abide by it and gave it away. And and unfortunately told the person who they gave the dog to that the only reason I wanted the dog back was to breed it, which, of course, was not true. And so when we went to court for thousands of dollars, um, I got the dog back. It wasn't as easy as yours where you found the first person and they go, yes, I want the dog back. And then you could give it back. Uh, he loved the dog and I knew he was a great home for the dog. But since the well had been poisoned, right, I'd never done anything to indicate that I was taking that dog back to breed it, but rather that I had the first right of refusal because I do take with whelping box to Rainbow Bridge seriously. Um, I took, I'll never forget, I took the dog back from court when it was awarded to me because I had the first right of refusal and I didn't refuse. Um, and I called him on a Friday. 
So I took the dog on Tuesday, called him on a Friday, said, would you like to come over for coffee on Saturday? And then we sat down and had the same kind of conversation I would have had, had the original owner said, listen, I can't keep the dog. Karis is this great person who knows the dog, loves the dog, be a great second home. Great. Send her to me. And we could have done this all for much less money um, where I would have just said, great. So you can go from person A to person B. Let's just make sure you know that I'm here for you too. And I think that's the thing that needs to be really addressed when divorce happens, because these dogs usually are, you know, better off with one person or the other, possibly shared if they're really, you know, um, committed to the people, not the dog, committed to what's best for the dog and making sure that transition is less um, emotional. Uh, because I find that sometimes my clients are so emotional when they pick up the dog and then emotional when they leave the dog that the dog's like WTF. I mean, what's yeah. going on here? No, they do. It's, that. Yeah. It's, it's just like the poor dogs are just sitting there wide-eyed like, Oh my gosh, every time I see this person, she's um, crying. It's, it's panic it's panic stations and we're just going to the park. What's wrong? Yeah. Um and 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 in that case it's like, you know, people it's so hard on the dogs. That's all I, I I you've got to try to see things through the eyes of a dog and how they and must that's look the difference to them. between humans. I always say to people, you know, if I could explain to the dog what it is that we were doing here, and they would understand, like you said, they don't speak German, they don't speak Spanish, they don't speak English. They just sort of learn word sounds that mean sit and things like that. If they, if we could explain to them what was going on and they go, Oh, sure. No problem. I understand. I'm just going to be with Karis every other, excuse me, other month. And then I'm going to be with Deborah every other month. And, and this is going to be great. And when I'm with Karis, I'm a couch potato. And when I'm with Deborah, I climb mountains because, you know, dogs do appreciate those downtimes. I had a podcast uh, with a colleague whose husband, you know, was a couch potato and they drank beer and ate Cheetos on the couch, uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback. And then she was a triathlete. So the Rhodesian Ridgeback did the triathlon with her. They do enjoy that, but you really have to understand what's what would be in the best interest of the dog if that relationship broke up. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. You, you the that's just the default in the work I do. Everybody yeah. needs to be fully respected. Absolutely, what's right for the dog, and yeah. I think that and that gets that, lost. It does, and that kind of leads in. I mean, so the last point of these three points is the is the bargaining, yeah, the bargaining issue. So. Bargaining happens in, you know, in any negotiation, there are bargains and, okay, well, I'll give you this if you give me that. And um, it happens with animals. So there's a couple of ways to look at this. So the one is if someone is, is willing to give up Rover in exchange for something else, it's very possible that Rover shouldn't be with that person. So maybe the bargaining in that sense works okay. You know, it's like, okay, that's fine then. I would, yeah, I'll take I'll take Rover and you take whatever, the the summer cottage. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's just also important that that, you know, in working with with the mediator or the attorney or the collaborative attorney, that that you're not um giving up something that you shouldn't for the dog. You know, the dog and and that's and, and that it's it's yeah. not really an even exchange, although some people yeah. would say it is. Yeah. So if you know, and that's what happens. So if, if, you know, if, if I know if I've been married to Deborah and I know the dog's the most important thing, I'll try to use that to get, and people can be very, very overt and just put it out on the table. Um, and, and then that just requires skill to, 
that you don't over, you don't sacrifice something that's also important to you just to keep that special relationship with the dog. Yeah. And, and, and that all the same conversations still need to happen. Is this right for the dog? Is the dog going to be in a situation, you know, where it should be? And, and, but, but this also circles back to why it's so important to work with the dog very early before we get to the summer cottage problem. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> to work with the dog very, very early. I mean, I had a, I had a client, I mean, and, and they were, it was very complicated, but the one party was willing to part with the record collection from her late father in order to keep the dog. And, and I just, I had to say pause and I had to say, just take a breath here. Do you really think that that's, are you, do you really want to part with this very important piece of your, of your dad, who's gone now, you know, and, and this person kind of caught her breath and said, no, maybe, you know, maybe not, but, but that's what happens. And when we get, we start bargaining with the dog. So. And also asking the other side, do you really want to um, take her father's record collection in order to give her the dog because you want her father's record collection because it's emotionally you're emotionally attached to it or because it has some sort of value that that you or you just want to hurt i mean these questions you have to be really delicate but you have to get to the core of why i want that record collection because i know how much it'll bother you 10 years from now when the dog is dead that i have the record collection and you have nothing yep and that's and that's the 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 job and the skill of people who do what we do is you do have to ask those questions you have to be kind of brave and compassionate enough to say it. And sometimes just saying it pops the pops the invisible bubble in the room yeah. and then and then the conversation can move. But yeah, it's, it derails that 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 train that's going down the rabbit hole. Uh, it derails it for a minute and you can then go, oh wait a minute, let's take a step back. And that's why working with people like us um, who really focus on just this relationship between people and their animals is so key. If you're a divorce professional, you are fabulous in so many things regarding children and property. But where animals are concerned, there is absolutely you know, no cut and dry, no black and white. It's all emotional. And you need someone who really does focus on this. I, you know, I know, Karis, you and I both agree with this. However, most um, professionals don't necessarily think except possibly, you know, divorce coaches who understand the value of having someone in the room who's specific for this piece. Uh, It's, it's something that we're educating. That's why we're doing this podcast. We're educating people about, because it is good to have someone in the room who's going to hold that safe space for you, um, your ex and your pet. Yeah. And the people who I, I mean, this is, this is this funny thing I've noticed when, when people, I tell people what I do, they laugh, they go, yeah. what? And then they go, oh, wait a minute. Oh yes, of course. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's like, because it is, it is, you know, there's something in, in divorce mediation called the voice of the child. Right. And when we talk about the voice of the child, what that in me, it's a, it's a big topic, but that means that someone external comes in to provide the voice of a child in a custody dispute for a little kid who who can't speak for themselves to sort of hold that point of view in the conversation. And that's really what I do and what you do. It's like, I'm the voice of the pet. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, I know how animals behave. I know how human behavior affects the animal. I'm going to speak on behalf of this animal and, and um, bring that into the conversation. And that's 
I mean, what's interesting also is that I do my work online. I mean, and here we are talking on Zoom and we're on the other side of the world. I've been doing it since 2016. So when everything fell out of the you know, universe to Zoom, I said, and this is what I've been doing forever because it really does make a big difference. Yeah. And, and I can do it because I don't need to see, I don't need to physically touch and see the animals I work with because spending an hour with the dog isn't going to change anything. It's like, I need the history. I need the, the dynamics of the people involved. I need the future plans and the, and you know, all, all of that's the information that I need. It doesn't, um, I mean, I have, it's when I do work with people and people in person, I don't let them bring the dog to my office because yeah. All that happens is they both spend the hour trying to show me that the dog loves them more. And the, tr- the dog's just sniffing around the office smelling my dogs. You know, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't, doesn't. I'll doesn't let my help. dogs into the room because it sometimes <laughs> takes the temperature down. But no, I don't have the dog there either because it just is, um, as you said, perfectly. You know, they want to show me that they're the better owner. It's sort of like when Judge Judy has the dog come into the courtroom and whichever person the dog runs to is the person she awards the dog to. And I go, OK, so my dogs will always run to me because I feed them. And that doesn't necessarily mean they, they like me more or less. It simply knows that, you know, if they were relying on my husband, maybe that would not be good for them, but he's a great caregiver and provider when I'm not around. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it doesn't, it's not, it's not about the, 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 the moment with a person. It, It really isn't. It's about, it's such a complicated layered thing. And and in doing this, it makes me so happy to be able to just share the need for what we do, because it is a new thing. It's, it's like, oh, this is, this is, and the people who do really support it, I find um, in the beginning are people who divorce professionals who have their own animals, who are like passionate about their own animal. I go, oh, yes, I understand. This is, yes, I would, I would want this also. But it is becoming more of the, the awareness is getting out. And, and it often happens when a, you know, a mediator or an attorney's had a, suddenly a, a case where there's a dog and it derails the whole process. My best clients are the ones who tried to do it themselves and had everything blow up. And then they go, next time I'm calling Deborah or Karis because I just, I don't even want to go there. I want this to be done early. I want this to be settled early. I want everybody to be on the same page because after we get everything done and then we get to the dog and everything blows up, you're like, how did that happen? Well, because this is probably next to the children. Um, and if there are no children, it is the most important piece to um, come to terms with when a relationship breaks up. And on that point, I want to chat with you because a lot of times in my mediations of people in conflict over an animal, the animal is always an emotional support animal. It never was before, but now it is. And it really, I, I always say, and Karis, you and I are very flippant about this, and, and I don't want to insult anyone who has an emotional support animal. Um, I think a behaviorist like Karis should be brought in to have the animal evaluated as an emotional support animal uh, because some dogs, as Karis has beautifully pointed out, don't do well in certain environments. So if you want to have an emotional support animal on an airplane, you need somebody like Karis to come in and do a behavior analysis to see if that dog really likes to be on an airplane because, you know, you might want it on the airplane, but that's when those issues arise that they bite people because they're in a fearful situation. Um, But in my cases, it is almost always the person with the animal tells me, but they're my emotional support animal now and I can't let them go. 
And um, okay, so I'm going to be flippant and I apologize again to anyone who's going to take this the wrong way. But if your animal isn't an emotional support animal, you probably shouldn't have it because that's what they do. They provide us with emotional support, whether they have a letter or not. I don't know, Karis, am I being really too flippant? I, I know I am, but you know, no, you're, you're, not. you're not, <laughs> you're behaviorist. So, and I always tell the psychologist that asked me, what should I do? You know, my clients asking for one of these letters. And I said, you better hire and work with an animal behaviorist. I said, because if you're giving this letter to somebody um, to have an emotional support animal, you need to make sure that animal who you've never met um, is going to be able to handle that moniker. Yeah. It's a, so, I mean, just a quick recap for this. So there are two, broad categories of animals that are allowed in public spaces. The one are service animals, and these are seeing eye dogs. These are dogs who help people with diabetes. They'll alert them if their blood sugar is too low. Um, they could be seizure alert dogs. Um, they're dogs who who are trained like for years. I mean, I'm talking like two years, years of and years of training. Dollars, right? Sixty thousand dollars worth yeah. of training. Um, and 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 you'll get some some vets who you know um, veterans who have serious post traumatic stress disorder who need to have those dogs yep. with them. That is not the same as an emotional support animal. No. And, and people need to understand that the difference between the two, because as you said, there are people who really, really do benefit from emotional support animals. And anyone listening in that case to this podcast should appreciate what we're about to talk about, because the people who abuse the system, and I'm going to use the word abuse, of emotional support animals um, are doing the a moniker, disservice right? to people. Not the animal yeah. itself, but the moniker. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Not abusing the animals, but but they're, they're taking advantage mm -hmm. of having their dog have a label like that. And so emotional support animals are used for people with things like social anxiety, depression, more subtle Right. Um, harder to harder to pin down conditions. Right. And you can get a therapist or a, or a psychologist to prescribe you an emotional support dog to give you support out in public spaces. What has happened with that is that, but the laws have changed now with the airlines. I don't know if you've seen Deborah. Yes. So what yep. happened for a time is that if you had an emotional support animal, they were given the same rights as service animals, which meant you could take them on an airplane. You could you were allowed to to rent any apartment that wasn't allowed dogs because it was an emotional support dog. Mm -hmm. And and the truth is that people took advantage of that system and to so they could just sort of take their dogs with them everywhere. In the divorce space, I have seen and you have seen and everyone has seen that when a divorce comes up, there is a bit of a scramble for one party to get their dog um, prescribed or labeled as their emotional support animal to prove ownership. And that's or to not prove actually they are the most worthy of having the animal because the animal provides them with a service. So since it provides me with a service and not Karis, it should stay with me. Yeah. And and. It's a and it's because it's a uh, it is a system that that is easy to you know slide through. Um, people who work in the divorce space just need to be aware of it and that they don't confuse it with a service dog because a service dog is I mean I mean in other words any animal can be an emotional support animal they require no training they require no special breeding there's no assessment for it they're trying to change the laws for this but at the moment there isn't you can just right. take literally any dog and say this is and that's what makes it dangerous because those dogs like you said they get put on not anymore but they get would used to be put on airplanes or go into movie theaters and and that sort of thing so 
yes, that's definitely a little bit of a soapbox of mine. Yeah, well, we're going to have a whole podcast on that soapbox, Paris, because both of us are so totally um, dedicated to people who need emotional support animals and what the limitations of that practice is, because there are severe limitations. You can only have it in your apartment, in a dog-free, cat-free, animal-free apartment. You can't really have it in the um, general space. And if you do have it in the general space, you need to make sure you inquire whether or not the person in the elevator or whatever is um, okay with you getting on the elevator with your dog, because you don't have that um, luxury of taking your dog. It's not a service animal. It's an emotional support animal on the elevator with someone who lives in a no pet building, maybe for a reason. Um, And then airplanes, we're going to talk about that. And then we're really going to go into and delve into service animals. But before we, and I just want to wrap up, Karis, this has been such a wonderful discussion about why professionals in divorce should hire professionals in uh, deciding how to help the people um, choose the best future for their pet's of divorce. Um, we talked about the humanity and, and how we humanize animals. So we give them emotions and feelings that they don't necessarily have because they really are, you know, they love us all. That's why everybody says, you know, they're so, they're so human. And I said, no, they're better than humans because they don't hold grudges most of the time, maybe some cats, but, um, you know, <laughs> and parrots, parrots hold grudges. Parrots. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, so some of them do, but not most of them do. So we, we have these human traits that we need to really get a handle on. And with people who are trained in the art, of helping people decide what happens with their pets. It's, it's a much better thing. It should be done upfront first thing, not later when you're, you know, trying to do it. Um, we don't want anybody to weaponize the dog and give up things. And in the bargaining situation, give up things that they really, they have to really know. I mean, I know that my dogs and your dogs are really valuable to us, but we have to have someone there who's objective um, to really have us uh, evaluate what it is we're giving up in order to keep our dogs and whether or not that is something that is in the dog's best interest or in our best interest. Um, So, you know, humanizing the dog, weaponizing the dog, bargaining for the dog, really we covered that and I'm so thrilled we had that chance. And Karis, just wrap us up because I know there's one tidbit you wanna share with us uh, to wrap this up so that we can then move on to the service animal and emotional support animal next time you come back. Awesome. Well, I think, look, the main, the main tip I have with anyone who has a dog, see your dog for the individual dog that it is, regardless of its breed, regardless of its age, regardless of it's a boy or a girl or whatever it is, because every dog is different. So view it from that objective place. And if your dog is acting in an, in an un happy way, or if something, the only way a dog can show you they're stressed is with their behavior. So if their behavior is not good, whatever that means, that's such a vague term, they need something in their life needs to change. So get some help, get, there's lots of resources out there for wonderful people who can give you good advice. Don't take bad advice, get good advice and see how you can help them. 
Karis, thank you so much. So we've been speaking with Karis Nafti, my dear friend who is an animal, a certified dog behavior consultant, as well as a mediator, and so a pet custody specialist like me. So we just wanted to share this information with you. You can find all of the connectivity links to Karis's website uh, on the podcast show notes. Until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? Because they make our lives whole. Take care. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcasts. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.